0: They're giving a gift to the Democrats in terms of broadcasting uh, this nuttiness to, to the entire country every day. And so if they want to do that, if they want to, like, espouse these positions that are wholly unpopular and that cause most people on both sides of the aisle to cringe when they see it, then, like, we should help them.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode three of The Aaron Rupar Show. I'm very excited today to have Brian Tyler Cohen on the show. Um, if you're following me or listening to this, you probably know who Brian is, but he is one of the most impactful liberal journalists on YouTube with almost 2 million followers doing daily videos at the No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen show. Um, I call him a journalist. He calls himself an activist. He does a lot of interesting coverage of current events, including a legal show that he does every week with Glenn Kirshner and their most recent episode, which we talk about a little bit during our interview. Uh, goes deep on the possibility of Trump being indicted by the Manhattan DA and how that could affect his bid for the presidency. So Brian and I talk about all things to do with the Republican primary. We talk about the Fox Dominion lawsuit and some of the big takeaways that Brian has from that, which he's also covered in videos on his YouTube page. And then we end with some reflections on Brian interviewing President Biden just over a year ago in the White House, which uh, for a liberal YouTuber to line up an interview with the President of the White House is a big deal. Brian is very humble about it, but there's some interesting behind the scenes stuff that he shared with me about how that went down. And so stick around to the end of the interview for that. The first two episodes of The Aaron Rupar Show featured interviews with Ron Filipowski and Marissa Cabus, respectively. Uh, Please go back and check those out. I think you'll enjoy them if you haven't already listened to them. And if you're new to the show and haven't already subscribed, uh, please do so and leave a positive review on iTunes. I would really appreciate that. Uh, I'll be back next week with an interview with independent journalist Thor Benson. So stay tuned for that next Wednesday. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Brian. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 3 of The Aaron Rupar Show. I'm very excited today to be here with Brian Tyler Cohen. Uh, You probably know Brian Tyler Cohen from Twitter, um, where he offers a lot of commentary on the news of the day, but he's an even bigger deal on YouTube, where he has almost two million YouTube followers. He does daily videos, um, covering a lot of the same stuff that I cover in the newsletter. So I figured he would be a great person to bring on to talk about the Republican primary, to talk about Fox Dominion, uh, maybe Marianne Williamson, if we have time. So Brian, thanks for joining. Aaron, thanks so much for having me, man. And congrats on the new show. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, Brian and I met last September when I was in LA for a conference, and uh, we've talked a couple times on the phone since then, but it's nice to see you and to catch up a little bit today. So I wanted to start by kind of diving into the Trump DeSantis shadow primary, which is kind of coming out of the shadows now, uh, especially this week with uh, both of them holding dueling events up in Iowa And I thought it was interesting that DeSantis over the weekend uh, made his first trip to Iowa. He was in Davenport delivering a speech. And then Trump went to Davenport just a few days later. And The New York Times is reporting on this, basically tried to establish that Trump was going to Davenport to try and quell any momentum that DeSantis might build from that trip. So, you know, there are already moves being made on the chessboard. I know that uh, we're a long way out from votes actually being cast. I think it's still, you know, 10 or 11 months before any of the primaries actually occur. But we are kind of in a weird spot um, in our politics right now in the U.S. where it feels like Congress is kind of a lost cause for now. I mean, the House is having a lot of these hearings that seem primarily geared toward crafting clips for Hannity, uh, a lot of Hunter Biden stuff, a lot of Twitter file stuff, not a lot of legislating happening at this point. This week, they're not even in session. And so obviously that kind of uh, makes it impossible for Congress to accomplish much. And so we are kind of looking forward at this point to 2024, and the Republican primary is going to be fascinating for many reasons, one of which I know you've covered uh, with Glenn Kirshner in a show that you do. I believe it's a weekly show, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you guys delved into a little bit the possibility um, of a Trump indictment, which seems more imminent than ever, given that uh, the DA in Manhattan has offered to Trump the opportunity to testify before a grand jury that is investigating the hush payment made to Stormy Daniels just before the 2016 election. Um, When I saw this news last week uh, break uh, that Trump possibly faces an indictment over this, I tweeted that it's actually kind of a nice callback by the writers of the Trump show here, because this was from the 2018 season, which was five years ago. But, um, you know, it feels like it was 10 years ago now. And I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the whole the whole, Stormy Daniels situation. So I uh, kind of big picture. I'm wondering what you're thinking about the you know, the possibility that Trump is indicted. I know, obviously, Glenn is more of the the legal mind in terms of your pairing. But from the political aspect, what's your sense of how a possible indictment could affect the 2024 primary? And I guess the reason I I asked that just to, to back up one step here is that I kind of have the sense that it could in the primary at least help Trump, um, because, you know, I mean, illegal campaign contributions are a big deal, and that is the allegation here: that the payment to Stormy Daniels was meant to hush her up ahead of the 2016 presidential election to keep that story out of the news. And so, obviously, it benefited Trump's campaign and was intended to benefit his campaign. But certainly, it's not as big of a deal as trying to overthrow U.S. democracy. So, I'm just wondering what you think in terms of um, how you think this will impact the primary, if at all, or you know, maybe this will be more of a thing that won't hurt Trump in the primary but could in the general election.
0: Yeah, you know, I just. On this topic, I think that Trump is trying to will into existence this idea that, you know, every time he takes a hit, it makes him stronger. Like he just absorbs it and then and then gets, gets even bigger as a result of that. And, and I think that that's nice wish casting, but I don't think that it exists in practice. Like Donald Trump has all this baggage from all, you know, from the last five, six years. And he carries that with him. And right now, the only tangible results that we've seen is that He's pretty toxic in all the elections that he's that he's uh, that he's gone through over these last few years, like these last two cycles, especially he has very little, if not any, if anything to show for it. I mean, he lost the 2020 election in 2022. He had his whole slate of MAGA candidates of surrogates who were you know campaigning on his behalf, on his agenda. All of them lost, um, almost exclusively lost in secretary of state and gubernatorial races in every battleground state in this country. So. This idea that Donald Trump just like just like takes all these hits and it somehow turns him into this like turns him into this uh, this 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 monster who can't be beaten, just kind of uh, there's no proof to back any of that up. So I think that if he's indicted now, you've got a guy who loses elections and who's got legal baggage. I, I don't see how the majority of Republicans can see that and say, you know. That's my guy. That's who's gonna win the next election in this country, dude. Dude, running from prison, you know, like. Yeah. And and granted, take that with a grain of salt because the GOP primary specifically is a race to the bottom. I think, right. if nothing else, we've seen that. But there are broader, uh, general election implications beyond the primary, and if Republicans are in any way smart, they would consider that you know, or or or, yeah. or they won't. I, I don't I don't care. It's their funeral. You know? Yeah.
1: No, I I think that primary voters probably are not thinking ahead like that. I mean, I think that um, the problem is that, you know, 20 to 30 percent of them are members of the Trump cult. And so that puts DeSantis at a big disadvantage right away because, you know, he's probably looking at the loyalty of maybe two to five percent of of Republican primary voters. And so, yeah. Um, I think some of the party tastemakers and elites um, are probably looking ahead in that fashion, but that may be impotent to actually affect how the primary unfolds. Um, You mentioned the race to the bottom that is the or that will be the Republican primary. But one thing that kind of struck me, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to see this clip, um, the clip that actually went most viral from this interview of Ron DeSantis on Fox and Friends that aired on Monday morning was the clip uh, that I posted of Brian Kilmeade and DeSantis playing catch with each other. Did you happen to to see that one? It was a literal softball interview where uh, (laughs) Kilmeade is interviewing him as they play soft toss with each other. And, you know, a lot of people commented that it seemed like the idea there was to present an image of DeSantis as young and athletic and, you know, draw kind of an implicit contrast with Trump, who um, I think we can all kind of in our minds... Think about how that would go if he tried to play baseball catch with uh, Sean Hannity while Less they were so interviewing each other.
0: Because I, you know, he says that he is he's the best athlete there's ever been. There's never been an athlete as strong as him. Uh, grown men with their muscles bulging see him play baseball and they cry tears and they say, sir, you know, we've we've never seen anybody play baseball this well. It's uh, you know grown men crying. So. Well, DeSantis,
1: to his credit, actually was a legitimate baseball. Yeah, player. Yeah, no, I, I believe yeah. he played at <laughs> yeah, Yale. So I don't think Trump can stack up with that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I guess if Trump happens to uh, win the presidency and there's a congressional baseball game, maybe, uh, you know, if if uh, maybe you can have DeSantis up there, they can actually play and we can we can see this. But in any event, the reason that I bring that up is because one of the questions that Kilmeade asked DeSantis was how he's responding to these attacks that Trump is making on him. You know, Trump went up and this actually happened after that interview. But later on Monday, when Trump went up to Iowa. Um, I posted a clip yesterday of, of MSNBC putting together a supercut of some of the attacks that Trump was making on DeSantis. And he was basically trying to link him with Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney was accusing DeSantis of wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare, which is quite rich because, of course, every budget that Trump proposed while he was president was going after the social safety net. So he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on there. But DeSantis's response was basically that he plans to just point at his record of accomplishment. You know, he plans to point out what's going on in Florida and try to make more of a positive case than kind of gutter fighting with Trump. Um, You know, that sounds nice right now, but, you know, I do wonder how that's going to play out if they're on a uh, debate stage with each other, which they likely will be eventually. But curious for your thoughts kind of on that political strategy. You know, one thing that comes to mind for me in thinking about this is that we are a long way away from votes actually being cast. And so there might be, Going negative this soon um, might be a bad strategy just because to to sustain that for a year when you're kind of fighting total war with someone like Trump, that's probably a losing proposition. But I mean, do you think that there's some wisdom from the DeSantis camp in trying to at this point define Ron in a positive way rather than trying to negatively define Trump? And um, the fact that he's not really responding to these attacks that Trump is making on the stump against him, do you think that's a losing strategy or is there some, some wisdom there?
0: Well, in terms of DeSantis pointing to his record, as we know, Republicans are famously all policy wonks. The Republican base, if nothing else, just loves getting into the weeds on the uh, on the intricacies of legislation. Um, Yes, I do. I I, I do think that there is that this is like a doom strategy for for uh, for Ron DeSantis, like the primary on the Republican side is going to be a circus. And as such, it'll reward the biggest clown. So, uh, you know, I think that he can try to stay out of the gutter as long as as long as he can. And really, he has no choice because Trump wants him to be there, that he wants him to to get into the mud. Um, But but yeah, I mean, I, I think that like Trump has created a party and the party has has allowed him to create, uh, has facilitated the creation of a party where it's just it's just like mayhem, it's just this is what they reward. And so, yeah, I think like DeSantis can try to can can pretend that it's that he wants to point to his record so that he can define himself. But that's just because he knows that that what Trump does well and what the Republican base wants is just the fight is just the pandemonium that comes with the Republican primary. And so uh, so, you know, DeSantis will give his excuses and pretend that he's trying to define himself. But I think he's just trying to delay the inevitable. And when that inevitable comes uh, I, I don't know if he's going to be able to stand up. To, I mean, you even you even remember on the debate stage when uh, Charlie Crist posed. I forgot what question it was specifically it, that he posed to discuss. I think the one
1: that ended up being and it sounds even silly to recall this because it was such a it was such a nothing question was basically like, can you commit to serving your, serving four your years full term? Yeah. And he couldn't. And, yeah. It it was like, you know, someone asked him um, the, the theory of relativity or something. Yeah. He had, he had no response uh, for exactly. that. So, exactly. Yeah.
0: And so and so I think that that if he's not able to fend off like the softest attack by Charlie Crist, which is like an attack insofar as you think that someone asking you if you'll serve your full term is an attack. If you're able if if that like freezes you up, then, man, when you get on that debate stage with Trump, who's going to go full scorched earth, uh, whose entire political identity is predicated on just destroying people who stand in his way. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how Ron DeSantis is going to fare, and I think he very clearly knows that, and so he has every incentive in the world to make sure that every day that goes by is another day not spent in the mud with Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. How depressing do you find it? You know, I don't know if you paid attention to the statement that DeSantis sent to Tucker Carlson that was read on air on Monday night. This has gotten a lot of press this week because it was a statement where he basically said that Ukraine is not a vital national security interest of the United States. And reading between the lines, um, was basically parroting Trump's position that, you know, um, aid is maybe misguided to Ukraine. And we, we need to reassess that and focus more on direct U S national security concerns. How depressing do you find it that the Republican primary, you know, it seems to be a choice at this point between two pro Putin candidates.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's super depressing. And I think, I think that, uh, the reason for that is DeSantis will just basically parrot everything that Donald Trump does and says, but but then coupled with the fact that he's trying not to get into the mud with him, he's just trying to show himself basically – as trump without the trump toxicity without the trump tweets without the trump baggage and so as depraved as all of donald trump's positions are desantis has every incentive again to just repeat all of those positions because he doesn't want any daylight between them on the two he doesn't want to give donald trump anything to attack him with and so he'll parrot all of these positions on lgbt rights on abortion on uh on, you know, foreign affairs, Ukraine and Russia and and try to stay out of the mud with the, you know, the personal attacks, because because he's just trying to reach the exact people who are supportive of Donald Trump right now. You got to imagine that, you know, there is some sizable contingent of the Republican Party who wants to win uh, an election for once. And they've seen that Donald Trump lost in twenty twenty. They've seen that all his, uh, you know, his surrogates lost in twenty twenty two. And so DeSantis is trying to make himself into this like mini me of Donald Trump, into this spitting image of Donald Trump, only without, you know, the little bit of baggage that prevented him from winning, uh, that prevented him from winning these last elections or without the legal exposure that he's contending with right now. Um, But with that said, I mean, it's 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 terrible for democracy. The idea that you can, in the same breath, pretend that you're like some freedom defender some freedom fighter out here and then and then also defend someone like vladimir putin like to call yourself the the uh the governor of the free state of florida while at the same time supporting someone like vladimir putin who's bombed maternity wards and taken away basically every uh uh, every semblance of freedom that, that the russian people have and are trying to destroy the entire country of ukraine is just uh you know if there was any shame on that side, they would be able to see uh, to see that asymmetry. But they won't. yeah,
1: yeah, this is kind of a dangerous game. But I'm curious, you know, as, as we're giving free advice here to Republicans in terms of how to handle Trump or what we would do if you were advising. I mean, let's say that there was a Republican primary candidate. I mean, obviously, I think for both you and myself, it'd be kind of a far-fetched idea that we would support any Republican in a primary. But let's say that there was one along the lines of like a Liz Cheney with better um, domestic and social policies. um, And you were advising them about how to defeat Trump in a primary. What would that advice look like? I mean, would you be because for me, if if I was advising DeSantis, the, the argument that seems quite obvious that I think he should be making more clearly is that he's a winner. Trump is a loser. You know, it's a very easy contrast to make. Hey, you know, Donald, you lost in 2020 and had to try to overthrow democracy to stay in power here in Florida. I just won by 20 points. Um, you know, it's a very easy contrast to draw. And he's kind of hinted at this in a couple speeches that he's given, but he still doesn't want to go to the extent of bringing up Trump by name and really going hard on him. Um, so what, what do you think? I mean, if you were advising a Republican, how would you advise, you know, we're really early in the process at this point, but how would you advise a Republican candidate to try and defeat Trump in a primary?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you I think you 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 mentioned uh, I think you you explained it pretty well. I'm definitely not in the business of advising, uh, advising Republican primary candidates. But the argument that you made is the only argument to be made. And that is that by, by virtue of by virtue of accepting this this bogus notion that the 2020 election was stolen. In fact, Republicans have hurt themselves because they've taken away their opportunity. This invaluable opportunity to basically see that they lost, um, to retool, to figure out what went wrong, and to to reformulate their pitch to the voters, so that when they come around next time, uh, they have something to actually, you know, they have something to to. To, to sell to them that they might want. The benefit of losing an election is it allows you to go back and collect yourself and retool and figure out what went wrong so that you can fix it for the next election by virtue of pretending that they won an election where they clearly lost. They've basically stripped themselves of that opportunity. And so I think just following this these conspiracy theories and the straight disinformation about election denialism uh, would would really benefit Republicans themselves because uh, they would be able to use that to then uh, to then figure out what voters want that they rejected in the last election. So, yeah, yeah just this whole thing of like following Donald Trump, who has proven himself a loser. And, and that's that's so long as you're operating within the confines of reality, that's easy to see. I mean, again, he lost in 2020 all of his his candidates uh, running secretary of state and governor. In every swing state around the country lost in 2022, there is a clear argument to be made that if you continue to follow this guy and his agenda, you will lose. And if you continue to pretend that you won and and basically continue to show your voters whose votes you need that you're not willing to 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 operate within the confines of reality, then again, you'll continue to lose. This is very clearly what those voters rejected. And so long as you continue on that same path, I mean, what's the expression like the 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 definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and Mm -hmm. over and expecting a different result. That's what we're seeing right now. And so, you know, anybody with like with like half a brain within the Republican Party can see that, hey, if we want to win, we need to change something and continuing to follow Donald Trump off this cliff like lemmings ain't it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, pivoting to something that you covered last week, which is the the Fox Dominion scandal, these internal communications that have been released as part of Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox News. Um, in a video that you put together for No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen on YouTube, uh, which I recommend people subscribe to if you're not already subscribed to it, you had a line that I thought was brilliant. You You said, quote, when the cameras are off, you couldn't tell some of these Fox hosts from uh, from a text thread between Maddow and Chris Hayes, um, which I thought is just a great way to put it because it, it really is true that you know you read these text messages that hosts were exchanging with each other, that they were exchanging with their producers, and they seem you know, sane. Um, Tucker is saying that he hates Trump passionately and he can't wait to ignore them. Uh, I think we can all kind of relate to that. And then yet, yeah. you know, here he is last week on air as all of this news is breaking about his text messages, trying to rewrite the history of January 6th and, you know, uh, basically devoting an entire week of his programming to an apologia for Trump and the insurrection. Um, I wrote my newsletter that one of the things that really jumped out to me from this latest batch of filings is a revelation that Rupert Murdoch was giving the Trump campaign inside information about Biden's ads that were running on Fox News because, you know, as much as we already regard Fox News as more of a right-wing political operation than news media, the fact that Rupert Murdoch, you know, who's obviously the top person at Fox, was working hand in glove with the Trump campaign in sort of a, you know, colluding essentially to defeat Biden, um, that that surprised me. So I'm wondering, was there anything from the batch of text messages, these emails that we've now been privy to as part of this lawsuit that really jumped out to you or that surprised you? Because obviously you're immersed in sort of the same media space that I am. We both pay a lot of attention to Fox. So you can be you become kind of numbed to this stuff. But yeah. was there anything that jumped out to you that, that was surprising from these filings?
0: Yeah, I think I think the most telling part for me was the revelation about Brett Baer um, and Brett Baer. Obviously, we, we, we now know thanks to these uh, thanks to this this uh, discovery in the dominion lawsuit um, that brett Baer was saying uh, to basically even though the the election in arizona was correctly called to because his viewers because fox's viewers weren't happy about it because they were revolting against the network to basically pull that call from the biden column and stick it back into into trump's column and i think that's so important because for so long people have used brett Baer as this as this um, facade of, of of like this veil of legitimacy for Fox News. And th- that's what he's clearly there for. I mean, we had Chris Wallace uh, for a long time, and Chris Wallace is obviously gone now. I guess, you know, uh, he didn't have much of an incentive to stay. He was
1: hosting last night. I, I tweeted a, a little bit about this. He was hosting a special last night on the NCAA tournament.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole point of Brett Baer is to be there to like to, to lend this air of legitimacy to Fox News so that when we say... The obvious, which is that you know, Fox News is a propaganda wing of the Republican Party, a propaganda arm of the Republican Party, and you've got people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Maria Bartiromo, and we know exactly who they are. The plausible deniability that Republicans have is to say, "Oh, well, those are just opinion hosts. Everybody knows their opinion hosts." But Fox is still a legitimate news network. Look at people like Brett Baer, and uh, and now that we know that Brett Baer is just as hackish as the rest of them, uh, was was looking to basically um undo a legitimate call for arizona for joe biden because his viewers weren't happy with it which of course like yeah that's that that's not how they that's not how it works if you're not happy with it go out and vote and if you don't get enough votes that's it um but now that we know that brett bear is is just as hackish as the rest of them fox has no excuse now we can't pretend anymore like like Fox is a legitimate news outlet. And I think sure. part of that is on on them. It's Part of that is for them to contend with. And they and they and they won't because, it, you know, that requires shame. But but the, the other part is on us and and the media more broadly and t- to recognize that Fox News is no different than, you know, Alex Jones and and uh, and all the rest of these like right wing uh, uh, propaganda outlets for the Republican Party. And so, you know, part of why I think a big part of why Fox News continues to maintain it's it's this this air of legitimacy is because people imbue it upon them. And so I think if we all like collectively recognize what Fox is because they've shown us, they've broadcast who they are, Uh, Then I think that we don't have to like make this conscious decision to pretend anymore that Fox is a legitimate news outlet when we know that it's not because they've told us that it's not because we're seeing their correspondence with each other because we know how they operate behind the scenes and we know why they were created. But whereas they had plausible deniability before. They don't have that anymore because of this Dominion lawsuit, because we know from that from everyone from Maria Bartiromo and Tucker Carlson all the way down to Brett Baer, all the way to Rupert Murdoch himself, that that there is no one in that operation who views what they do, um, who views what they do as being like actual news. They are there to help the Republican Party full stop.
1: Yeah. And, and I know that you, like me, are in touch with far more Democratic elected officials and Republicans, obviously, which matters to this conversation because, you know, it's kind of a recurring debate in terms of what relationship Democrats should have with Fox, if they should just yeah. freeze it out entirely or if there are certain cases. You know, I talked with um, Ron Filipowski for the first episode of the show a couple of weeks ago, and this kind of came up in passing and he Drew a distinction in his remarks about this between, you know, let's say that you are John Kirby, Pentagon spokesperson, and there is information about the Chinese spy balloon that you want to get out to the American people. And so maybe you go on Fox and view it as kind of a means to an end to get information out there, you know, with COVID. We can all think of, you know, Fauci going on Fox. Um, I was actually it was. Three years ago, almost to the day that he had a very um, infamous interview with Laura Ingram, if you remember that, um, which maybe kind of crossed that line, because then you're on with the opinion hosts instead of the news people such as it is. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you've even interviewed President Biden. Um, I'm sure you didn't talk about Fox News during that. But, um, you know, what, what would you what, what advice would you give to Democrats about this? I mean, are, are they best off just icing out Fox entirely? Or are there some cases where maybe trying to appeal to this audience is still important? It's
0: a really good question and a really tough question, and my inclination is to say to freeze it out entirely and to not treat it like a legitimate news outlet, because it's not a legitimate news outlet. With that said, um, I mean, it can go either way. There's always some way to parse this where it's going to not work out well for Democrats because it's not intended to, because the system is rigged against Democrats. So if you have a Democrat go on that network, even just to, to to offer important news, like objective, important news about some foreign affair that's not even political in nature. They have every incentive to, you know, let's say you go on, they'll cut the clip however they want to when they show the rest of their audience. So unless you're watching the original clip, by the time it makes it filters its way down to Tucker and Hannity and Laura, it's, it's, whatever they want to make it into. So even if you go on Fox News with every good intention of just informing their audience, remember that at the end of the day, they hold the keys to the kingdom. They can they can basically pervert that narrative in any way that they want to. So whether, you know, but that's going to happen regardless of whether these people go on Fox News. So look, my inclination is just to say to freeze the network out, to stop treating it like a legitimate outlet. I mean, Biden didn't do the Super Bowl interview. I believe it was with yep. Brett Bair. Brett uh, good Good on him. Like, why? Why do we have to sit here and and all collectively play pretend that Fox is a legitimate news outlet when we all know that it's not even Fox knows it's not. I mean, their own anchors, their own chairman of the network all admitted what they are there to do. So like this idea that we're all just that we're all just playing pretend drives me nuts. So you know, I, I would say I would say that that probably my first thought is to is to freeze out that network where we can. With that said, there are effective communicators out there like mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg, where, where yep. every time they bring him on to Fox uh, and they Glorious. try to like land some some tepid gotcha moment on him, he just completely schools them. And so I think if you have someone who is able to do uh, what he does on Fox, who's able to do what needs to be done on Fox. Um, basically, to stop any disinformation in its tracks, then 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 you know put those people on on a case by ba- case basis. But in general, like to stop treating Peter Ducey like the same as everybody else.
1: Sure. Yeah. Let's maybe let's wrap up with a few minutes we have left with some conversation about your own work. Um, and we talked a little bit here about interviewing presidents, and of course, you interviewed President Biden. I believe it was a little over a year ago, right? Is yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I think
0: uh, uh, about. About a year and like three weeks ago. Okay. It was was, uh, February 25th, 2022.
1: Yeah, and I remember DMing you at the time and just being like, wow, that is absolutely incredible because, I mean, obviously you have a huge presence on YouTube especially, so I I probably shouldn't be surprised. But um, I just, you know, if I... email the White House, I would not expect for them to line up an interview with the president for me. So that was a really great get on your part. So just curious to kind of how did that come together? What was it like? I I believe that you were at the White House for that. Um, Was there any temptation to try and pull like a Jonathan Swan and really go hard and, you know, uh, ask some gotchas or, uh, you know, what was the preparation like for that? That sort of uh, that sort of, you know, the highest profile interview you could possibly do?
0: Yeah, it was um, it was definitely nerve wracking. Uh, in terms of what Jonathan Swan does, look, like we're we're in separate camps. I am I am not a journalist. I am I'm an activist, and so my goal here is to is uh, you know I know I know what my principles are, and I I know what I want to see, and I know um, you know who I want to build up, and who uh, I think that who whose behavior I think that needs to be exposed. So I, I kind of went into it, you know, there there. First of all, we were in the middle of like a really newsy moment when that happened. He had just nominated Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court mm. that day. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war had had only started, uh, I believe, like a few weeks earlier. Um, so there was a lot of just news that, that needed to come out. Also, there was a moment where I was able to ask him uh, his thoughts on Donald Trump calling Putin a genius in light of Putin's... Uh, in light of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And and he answered that question. And I think it was the first time that he uttered Trump's name during his presidency. Wow. Uh, which I didn't realize until afterwards. But I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But, you know, I, I, I went into it just knowing that there was a lot of like news to talk about. And uh, and, and there weren't really any moments up until that point other than the fact that we hadn't yet gotten any news about student loan cancellation and um, Mm. marijuana decriminalization or anything like that. Uh, But kind of the news drove that interview. And so I knew that I wanted to talk about Ukraine. I knew that I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, him nominating a Supreme Court justice. So those took priority. Um, And I'm glad that I didn't uh, ask about uh, student loan debt cancellation and marijuana reclassification because those ended up happening Anyway, and so for like some short term, like to use one of the few precious minutes that I had to talk about something that would have very soon thereafter been been figured out uh, would have, you know, in retrospect been been a a little bit of a disappointment. And instead, I got to talk about uh, the Supreme Court and I got to talk about uh, the the Ukraine, Russia investigate invasion. And so that's what I thought was uh, those were I thought were, were the most newsworthy parts of that interview.
1: Yeah. How much prep did you sink into something like that? Because, I mean, I'm looking at the interview now. It's it's about 14 minutes long. Uh, I'm guessing maybe, what did you get, like 20 minutes maybe with the president? or? Well,
0: ironically enough, they were very strict, about 15 minutes. And I had someone okay. right behind him counting me down. Wow. Uh, and and Joe Biden has a tendency to, to talk. And yeah. so uh, I remember, I think it was like my first question and he was talking and we went from like 15 to 10. And I was like, that was a third of my interview. And how do you, how do you interrupt right. the president of the United States to be like, that's enough. That's enough. Next question. If he's talking, he, that's it. Like you're waiting until he's done talking. And uh, sometimes I would just say some little, like, uh, you know, utter some, some words of acknowledgement at what he said. And he would take that as, as a, uh, an indication that he should just right like go right back in. And so now we're like 8 minutes into my interview uh and I and I have like my list of questions that I wanted to get through. But that was that's the tough part is like is like going in there and figuring out figuring out I guess how to interrupt the president of the United States while he's talking so that you can move the interview forward. And there you know, you figure out little ways to like to keep it going. Um but uh but yeah, that that was that was tough. So so we had we had 15 minutes I ended at fifteen minutes exactly, and then he sat there and chatted with me for like fifteen more minutes. Wow! Which, which I thought was awesome. It's not on camera. It's not recorded anywhere. But it was just like a moment that I have, sure. uh, which you know, in the in the internet age is 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 rare. But like you know, no just cell like phones, just
1: vibes. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And so like <laughs> I I have that. But there was a point at which we were sitting there for the extra twenty minutes of overtime, and I was like, man would have liked just a few more minutes of this to be on camera during the interview. (laughs) Like I could have, I could have traded maybe, maybe five or six minutes of this, of this post interview conversation, just to, to have like one or two more questions on camera, but you know, it is what it is. And he actually, I mean, he was scheduled for another, another interview uh, with uh, Heather Cox, Cox Richardson at the time. So he had another interview to go. Um, But with that said, I mean, he, he sat there and, and chatted with me for 15, 20 minutes after that. And, And uh, I remember his he had staff that was like that was signaling to me that he had another interview. And I knew that he had another interview. I I saw Heather earlier that day and uh, they were signaling to me that he had to go while he was talking. And at one point I saw his staff signaling. And I'm like, I'm like, if you think and I said this out loud right next to him, I was like, if you think. I'm gonna be the one to stop the president of the United States from talking and tell him that he's got to go. You, you are like you're out of your mind. Like if he wants to keep talking, I'll stand here all day. And uh, you know, he eventually he eventually did leave and and did that interview. And that was another great interview that he did. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was uh, you know we we got like almost a a half hour, a little more than a half hour with him.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, uh, exit question here. So you mentioned that you consider yourself more of an activist than a journalist. You know, I kind of started the show by trying to set the scene a little bit of where U.S. politics is at at this point, where it feels like Congress is kind of a mess. And, um, you know, we're already kind of talking about 2024. um, Not You know, and and that's not to erase the fact that there are real political issues and, um, you know, policy disputes that um, are going to matter before 2024. But um, with your, you know, that activist hat on um, what do you think Democrats can do this year heading into two thousand twenty four to put the party in position to have success during you know an election that is you know not only the presidential election is going to be monumental but um just down ballot as well to put the party in good position to hopefully you know uh, you know retake both chambers again
0: yeah, I think there's the obvious answers like Biden should continue to pass executive orders wherever he can on gun safety reforms on climate. Um, Democrats should continue to confirm judges. I think that's especially important, something that, that we've learned the hard way. But uh, here's a little bit of an outside the box one. I think that we should continue to highlight the crazy on the other side. And Biden started doing that with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he he brought her name up at a at a at a rally he did recently or, or a, you know, a speech that he did recently. And uh, I, I think that's smart because I know there's a lot of people that say that say, uh, you know, don't. Don't highlight, don't spotlight these people who, mm-hmm. like Marjorie Taylor Green, like Lauren Boebert, like Matt Gates, who thrive off of the attention because that's exactly what they want. Like, why give them the exact thing that they want? But the flip side of that, what they're not able to recognize by virtue of not having self-awareness is that... Most people don't agree with what they're doing. Most people don't want to traffic in the bullshit that Marjorie Taylor Greene traffics in. So I think that while she wants the attention, we also have an incentive in in basically showing what the Republican Party is to the majority of Americans. And the majority of Americans look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and they're not saying this is what we want. This is what we want. You know, this is what we want to cast our ballots for. So this idea that while they're trying their hardest to to promote the crazy, That we would step in and basically sanitize that party for them is just kind of it's just kind of nuts because, you know, they're like they're giving a gift to the Democrats in terms of like in in terms of broadcasting uh, this nuttiness to to the entire country every day. And so if they want to do that, if they want to like espouse these positions that are wholly unpopular and that cause most people on both sides of the aisle to cringe when they see it, then like then then we should, we should help them. Like we should show yeah. people what, what the GOP actually is. I mean, Margie Taylor Greene herself is, ha, is trying to make herself into the Republican party. Kevin McCarthy has basically given her his blessing to do so. And so mm-hmm. if that's what they want the Republican party to be, uh, I think we should take a page out of Republicans books who've tried to like paint uh, the democratic party for years as like the party of, of Hillary Clinton when they were trying to make her the villain as Nancy Pelosi when she was the villain as AOC when she was the villain. So that 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 works, except the difference is that, like, they are trying to make Marjorie Taylor Greene the face of that party. Right. She has her blessing from her best bud, Kevin McCarthy. She's back on all of all of her committees. They're putting her on TV. They're promoting all of her. You know what I mean? So so this idea that when there is when there is somebody as crazy as Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, And the rest of, you know, these these far right lunatics, when there are people crazy like that, then I think that we have every incentive in showing as many people as possible who that is. And so, like, if that's who that if that's who they want to empower within their party, then I think that we have every incentive in also showing everybody who they want to empower within their own party.
1: Yeah, you mentioned taking a page out of the Republican playbook, and Biden has literally been doing that during his speeches, reading from yeah. Rick Scott's policy plan. So <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, it, it, thing, it, it, a, yeah, a
0: lot of this time, all you have to do is just is just broadcast their own words, and and the mm-hmm. fact that they the fact that they they scramble after that the fact that they get so defensive when their own words are read back to them shows that a that they have they have no uh they have no confidence in what they're selling and b that 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 they know that their own policy positions are unpopular when you have to run away from your own from your own sales pitch, uh, that doesn't exactly bode well for for what you're selling. So,
1: yeah. And that's one of the most brilliant moments uh, of American politics this year was when Biden got the Republicans during the State of the Union to stand and cheer for Social Security and Medicare, because as he says during his stump speeches out there on tape. Um, so that, I think, kind of revealed what you're talking about, that the actual policy positions are unpopular, And so they either have to lie about them or change the topic. Uh, you know, which we're seeing with uh, the the banking crisis this week, and talk of woke banks to as a smokescreen to not talk about deregulation. But that's a topic for another time. Brian, really appreciate you joining me today. Subscribe to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen on YouTube if you're not already, and you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Tyler Cohen. So thanks again for joining me. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it, and congrats again on the uh, on the new uh, on the new show.
1: Thank you. That does it for today's episode of The Aaron Rupar Show. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also follow me on YouTube to watch the footage of the show each week. You can find me there at The Aaron Rupar Show. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So be sure to check out your feeds each week for a new installment of the show. And thanks for listening.